0: The Great Litany was the first piece of English liturgy written in England and Henry VIII permitted the litany to be said or sung in churches before there was a Book of Common Prayer or anything. It was still during his reign. And I know some of you say whenever we sing it, how long will this go on? (laughs) My goodness me, we've actually shortened it. We've taken some petitions out particularly the one that says against the Pope and all of his detestable enormities. (laughs) This is the fifth Sunday in Lent. We're just about ready to get to where the rubber hits the road. The the, the most important ground zero for Christian people, Holy Week. It's actually a mini-season, and it starts next Sunday with... Palm Sunday, and so this Sunday affords the opportunity to review thematically what we have have read and considered and reflected upon over the last five weeks uh, so that we now are prepared to get to Palm Sunday and the events of Holy Week. One of the things about this Sunday, which I'll talk about after I do this review, is that uh, this Sunday is the reminder that In the end, all of the things we're going to read about and hear in the liturgy over the next while, uh, everything's going to come out fine in the end. And in some ways, that's what this is about. Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent, and in some ways it establishes the predicates that we uh, understand as part of the season, the themes, uh, repentance, looking at your life in a new way, reconverting yourself to all the things that you value and are important in your desire to be centered in God, to know God's will and purpose for you, to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love, and to make the necessary changes uh, you need to in order to live a life congruent with his purposes, to understand that part of that process is to learn how to be a minister of reconciliation in the world, as Paul says in Second Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And so you and I have got to find the ways and the means to be reconcilers and to understand that uh, as at the heart and the center of our mission. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And also to understand that as we live in a period of reflection and self-examination that we need to think a little bit about our motives and whether they're clean and healthy and not corrupt. And how do we begin to take the appropriate steps that we need to in order to handle some of the things that have been allowed to sort of just go their own way and probably shouldn't be going their own way. And finally, on Ash Wednesday, we raise the question of the baptismal covenant and how that constitutes for us one of the templates that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity and how we see now that the the, uh, life of baptism flows through the church during Lent in a preparatory sense and we celebrate during the great 50 days of Easter Uh, the centrality and importance of our own baptism and baptism in the life of the church being grafted onto the body of Christ. So all of these themes appear in some ways or underneath the themes that we get during the five weeks in Lent. And this year we read on the first week as we do every Lent in all three of the cycles, the story of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, and the temptation of Christ constitutes for us uh, a template for our own self-understanding about temptations. Father Thomas Keating says that the source of the temptations for the Savior are the same, is the same source that you and I live through on a regular basis. And that is around the irrational programs for happiness that we believe we must engage in in order to be okay around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And those three areas are the areas that most of us have the greatest spiritual, emotional, and mental work to do on a regular basis. One of the things that is important to point out is that during the temptation of Christ, we didn't have just a one-off temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but even in the biblical witness, we will see that some species of temptation will continue to return to him as he fulfills his earthly ministry. And he he will be tempted to forsake his vocation, as we all are. And so this is the beginning of the season of Lent, the first week, where we think about how it is that we are going to be able to overcome these temptations and to embrace those irrational programs for happiness in their affirmative sense. All of us need to be concerned about security and survival. All of us need to be concerned about affection and esteem. We need it for our own emotional, spiritual, and mental health. And all of us need to be able to rightly use the power and control that we're vested with in big and small ways as we live in relationship. And this continues to come, out, come up through our lives and why we need to always be concerned about these matters. In the second week, one of the ways that is presented to us, at least obliquely in the biblical witness, is that those things that I've just mentioned are handled in some way through faith and obedience. And what that means is that the story we read in Genesis about Abram, who becomes Abraham, is told by God to leave his home country and to go to a place that he's going to tell him. And he does. He's obedient. And he believes that doing that in some way is going to lead him into a new self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for him. It is the faith of Abraham that allows him to live into the promises of God, and by extension, that is true for each of us. This is not some sort of blind faith that we sort of close our eyes and white-knuckle it. This is a sure, steady trust that the conundrums and the difficulties of life are going to come into surer and clearer focus, and we will learn to know what to do as we live on a regular basis. And part of the way that we do that is to embrace what is told us in the gospel on the 2nd Sunday and Lent, about Nicodemus and being born from above. Not born again, born from above. And in some way to hew to the values and the aspirations that we have always known about, that are part of the human character, that allow us to express the highest and best of our humanity. And when we do that, we live into God's purposes for each of us. In the third week, that we have one of I told you how much I enjoy... The murmuring passages in the Hebrew Bible. This is one of the murmuring passages. Perish life, 1250 BCE. The people are out there in the wilderness with Moses. They're upset with him. They're looking at their past through rose-colored glasses. They're afraid they're going to die of thirst. And they're running Moses nuts. He's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. And so God says, you get out in front of the people and you take some of the elders with you and you go to the place that I direct and you strike the rock that you, with the staff you use to strike the Nile and he does and the living water comes out. Christian people will read that text and say, this is about baptism. In addition to the fact that we believe that God slakes our spiritual thirst. And something else that we learn here, we learn that the nature of leadership in big and small ways has to do always with turning our own and others, those who are following you. You know, a leader is somebody who has followers. What is a leader? Well, somebody who has followers. You know, one or two or or a gazillion. To turn the gaze away From the place of remembered good times to a place where we will receive a new self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for us. Now the other thing that we learn on this Sunday in Lent is that God in the midst of our complaining and our murmuring and our self-centered fear always remains faithful, always remains constant, always remains gracious even in the midst of the greatest trials and tribulations. And then on the third Sunday, we read also in the gospel about the Samaritan woman who Jesus speaks to. It must have just knocked his disciples for six, that he was speaking to a woman, A, B, and B, a Samaritan drawing water at noon, the wrong time of day, which calls her character into question and a lot of other things. And in his dialogue with her, what he presents is, you know what? Jesus is the bringer of clarity. Because of what he says to her, she believes. And now she becomes a transparency and reflection of God's grace and love and goes back to her town and speaks about what he told her. So she becomes an ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through her. So it's about discipleship. And last week, we read about in all of the readings, God as the bringer of illumination. God as the bringer of light. And the story in the gospel is about the blind man who can see. You know, this gospel can be read and it's somewhat confusing, but what it's about is that there are people who are sighted who are still blind. They can't see what's right in front of them, or they refuse to see what's right in front of them. And there are people who appear to be, shall we say, dense, and can't see, who in fact see with greater clarity and perception. And so this is a gospel about, in a season of self-examination and reflection, about learning how to listen to those voices and to sharpen our own vision and our own understanding of what it means to see clearly the work of God in our lives and in other people's lives. It also is about baptism in the early Christian church. The Greek word that was used for baptism, photismos, means illumination. And baptism was called illumination. God's illuminative processes at work. How are they at work? They're at work through the Spirit of God that we receive at our baptism, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. Now today we read some readings about the presence of the Spirit once again, but this is about resurrection and transformation and new life. Setting us up to be able to endure what we're going to liturgically and in the in the biblical witness over the next week or so that it's all going to turn out all right in the end. So we read today in the Old Testament from Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones. Every I love this reading. It will come up again at the Great Vigil of Easter. It's one of the readings that you can read. In 1833... An Anglican priest by the name of John Keeble, who was a country parson, but also a fellow of Oriel College in Oxford, preached a sermon at the opening of the courts. They used to do this. The court would, session would come, the judges would come to the assizes, and he preached an assize sermon in 1833, and it was entitled National Apostasy, and it was on this text. Can these bones live? And can these bones live meant the Church of England. In 1833, on Easter Day, nine people received Holy Communion at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. This sermon inaugurates the Oxford movement in the Church of England, the Catholic revival in the Church of England, the revivification of the understanding of the importance and the power of the Church as it understood itself and took itself seriously, not merely as some appendage of the the national government. That sermon caused an enormous firestorm, but the conclusion that he came to was, yes, these bones can live, and here's how. So you and I read this, and we understand that God's spirit is at work to reconstitute those aspects of our life that are more abundant and dead. And Ezekiel gives great promise to the reader and the listener in this particular text about God's transformative power in the lives of people. You know, the second reading from Romans is something that is, uh, you know, one of the complex texts by Paul in in Romans. But what it's about is the issue of the flesh and the spirit. And I just want to say in passing that we always need to know that when Paul uses the term flesh, we ought not to, in a negative and pejorative sense... he does not mean that he is speaking badly about the physical and material world. He is not speaking about our bodies. He is not speaking about the creation that God made and called good. The word that he uses for flesh really means the disposition to turn into ourselves, to believe we don't need God or maybe other people in order to move in a a healthy relational way with God and with others. And so when Paul speaks about this and says we should turn away from the works of the flesh, that is what he means. He doesn't mean that the Christian life is a life lived undertaking one hair-raising austerity after another. Some people have interpreted it that way. And, you know, there are some people who may need to take on a few hair-raising austerities. (laughs) But not everybody is called to do that. And so we need to understand that there is uh, perhaps a middle way in that regard and that we focus on the spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And finally, in the story of the raising of Lazarus, we have the story about uh, raising, being raised from the dead. About resurrection. My bishop for many years before I came to St. Luke's in the Diocese of California was William Swing. And he used to say more, he said more than once uh, to the clergy uh, when we'd have clergy conferences and so on. He'd say, I believe in the resurrection because I have experienced resurrection in my own life. And all of you have experienced resurrection in your own lives, in big and small ways. You hear me say often that we want to think about these great uh, ideas that are part of the Christian faith in life, resurrection being one of them, always in heroic terms. But you know, resurrection, transformation, new life comes to us most of the time in the ordinary and in the commonplace. And it is by that process that we gain some insight into uh, the faith and belief of the church through the ages that resurrection is possible, that transformation is possible, that each one of us can be and is being made new in Christ. And so this gospel is about that for us today. Give thanks for the opportunity to be an instrument of God's transforming power. All of us have a responsibility to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love and resurrection. And we do that through sharing and commending to others the practical wisdom that we have learned in big and small ways about how to live. And when without prejudice or inserting ourselves into the center of the conversation, we're able to commend what we've learned to others and to listen to what they commend to us, we then become instruments of the transforming power of God in the world. So give thanks for the opportunity to do that as we approach Palm Sunday. Amen. Amen.